And welcome back to another episode of Weird Era, the literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, I'm joined by Chris Oliveros to discuss his new graphic novel, Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? Revolution in 1960s Quebec. Chris Oliveros was born in 1966 in Montreal and grew up in the nearby suburb of Chamédi-Laval. He founded Drawn and Quarterly in 1989 and was the publisher for the following 25 years. Olivero stepped down from D&Q in 2015 to work on Are You Willing to Die for the Cause, a graphic novel about the early years of the Front de Libération du Québec. It started in 1963, when a dozen mailboxes in a wealthy Montreal neighborhood were blown to bits by handmade bombs. The following year, a guerrilla army training camp was set up deep in the woods with would-be soldiers training for armed revolt. Then, in 1966, two high school students dropped off bombs at factories, causing fatalities. What was behind these concerted, often bungled acts of terrorism, and how did they last for nearly eight years? In Are You Willing to Die for the Cause, Quebec-born cartoonist Chris Olivero sets out to dispel common misconceptions about the birth and early years of a movement that, while now defunct, still holds a tight grip on the hearts and minds of Quebec citizenry and Canadian politics. There are no initials more volatile in Quebec history than FLQ. Standing for the Front de Libération du Québec, or in English, the Quebec Liberation Front, the original goal of this socialist movement was to fight for workers' rights on the French majority who found their rights trampled on by English bosses. The goal became ridding the province of its English oppression by means of violent revolution. Using dozens of obscure and long-forgotten sources, Olivero skillfully weaves a comics oral history where the activists, employers, politicians, and secretaries piece together the sequence of events. At times humorous, other times dramatic, and always informative, Are You Willing to Die for the Cause shines a light on just how little it takes to organize dissent and who people trust to overthrow the government. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> to start things off, um, I'm curious about your bio and your history. Uh, you are the founder of the institution that is Drawn and Quarterly. And uh, you say right there in your bio that you stepped away from your position eight years ago to work on this. Um, why did you want to take a project like this on? And what made you confident to step away from a position you held for 25 years? Well, I guess there's two parts to that. Um, let me see. I guess the first part is that I think I've always been fascinated by this story, the story of the FLQ. I mean, it goes back to when I was in high school, in my history class, we saw this NFB film on, on, on the FLQ, and I was completely blown away. I couldn't believe that something like this had happened you know, here in Montreal. Most of it happened in Montreal, although it was a Quebec thing, but it mostly, all the incidents that I talk about in my book are take place in Montreal. And it's not like I decided to do a graphic novel when I was like 15 on this, but it was it always stuck in my head. And I think maybe about 15 years ago, I, I, I got the idea to do it. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good subject for a book. But like year after year, I was... I thought there's, I can't, I just don't have the time. There's no way I'm going to be able mm. to do this 
because I, I it was you know working a full time job and and publishing company and so on. I mean it's 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 hard. It's hard to find that time. So eventually, eventually, I kind of came up to the conclusion that the only way I could do this uh, is if I if I step down. Um, and then luckily, and then that's sort of a, a whole other story because luckily, you know, the, the, there's so many like talented people and and uh, uh, people with so much knowledge of of the company and and how it works and so on that um, I never for a minute felt like uh, oh, this is gonna it's it's all going to collapse without me. I mean, it was mm. it was always it was always a, uh, I always had complete confidence, and um, and that's the other thing too. Just like I think it's important to have a succession um, mm. in in a company like like in an arts company to sort of think of the next generation and and generations, you know, after that, uh, because it's all too. Um, common for like the founder just to hold on for dear life until he or she is, you know, 75 or something. I, I do kind of want to jump off something you said there just about this kind of being something that you latched on to um, in your high school years, uh, you know, as a born and raised Anglo-Quebecer, I'll admit it took me years to kind of understand what the October crisis and FLQ actually was. It wasn't really something extensively taught at my English high school. Um, and it kind of took even more time for me to fully grasp how historically mistreated French Canadians were. Um, do you think your personal experience growing up in the 60s and 70s in Quebec gave you more insight into what created the conditions that allowed the FLQ to act? You know, in theory, it did. <laughs> in theory, mm. it did. But, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in, in an Anglophone suburb. It, it's in, in Chambly. The funny thing is, so Laval is a suburb of Montreal. Technically, Laval is its own city. But everyone knows it's a suburb. But within, so Shamadi is a suburb within a suburb. And um, although Laval is very francophone, there's this one place called Shamadi, which is like pretty much Anglophone. I think it's still, even today, it's like that. So mm -hmm. honestly, I did not get a lot of um, sense of Quebec culture growing up in Shamadi. <laughs> it may have, I may as well have been in Toronto. I got to have more of an appreciation for that as I got older, you know, just and, and as I got to learn more about how how bad things were for francophones at that period, um, you know, uh, during the, the the period known as the the Great Darkness, mm -hmm. and then um, and then even at the beginning of the, of, of the Quiet Revolution, it took a long time for for these things to change. It didn't happen overnight. I was. Um so intrigued by the framing device that you use in Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? Uh, for our listeners, the book starts with this ambiguous claim that the CBC started to collect interviews for a documentary about the FLQ and October crisis in 1975. Um, this documentary never came to fruition, but years later, transcripts of these interviews were discovered in the home of a retired CBC employee. These transcripts are what make the bulk of your book. Um, and in the notes portion towards the end of the book, we come to find that these transcripts also uh, do not exist. They act as a fictional narrative device for you to tell this story. Can you talk a bit about what inspired that idea? Well, telling history, I think, um, 
what really intrigued me a lot is that I didn't want to have like this one voice, right? Like this is the way it happened, and there's there's no there's no variation of this um, because you know. If you get to, together five people in a room or 20 people or however many people and you ask them to describe something that they had just seen, not even 20 years ago, but even like last night, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You're probably going to get a, a lot of variations, right? Some, there's, there might be some exaggerations and so on. Um, some, uh, some might be a little bit untruthful, but, but even, even if most people stick to the truth, there's going to be a lot of variations in their account. And I think that's mm. how normal life is. Right. So I wanted to, to, to sort of present that aspect. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to be really careful about it because I did not want to put any false information out there so that mm -hmm. whenever you have um, a narrator talking, um, recounting something, it is pretty much backed up by, by research. So like in the back of the book, there's an extensive section where there'll be, um, you know, a book is cited or a newspaper article is cited and so on. And uh, so what I usually do is that sometimes I'll have two people recounting a similar scene um, sometimes the dialogue in their account will be very, very similar, but they'll come up with different conclusions. Mm. Um, and I think that's how, again, that's how it works often in real life. I mean, some, some people might see something happening or, or read an article or whatever and come to a completely different conclusion. Do you think you would have been able to tell the story you wanted without that narrative device? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure it's possible, right? I don't. I don't think. I don't, I don't think I, I. I stumbled on the like the, the only. Uh, uh, the only way to do it, but I think, um, it sort of was a lot more interesting to me. Like, for example, there's the, one of those scenes is um, with uh, the chapter on Pierre Valliere. Um, Pierre Valliere actually, and I didn't know this before, but he actually. Um, before he joined the FLQ, he really worked long um, and hard for labor rights because mm -hmm. of, um, workers, in, in particularly Francophone workers, were terribly mistreated in, 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 uh, in what was mostly a, a factory system at the time. And so in one, he, he worked in one particular factory on, this, on the strike lines, on the, or the, is that how you say this, or on the, the picket lines. The picket line, and yeah. The picket line, <laughs> yes. And um, so, and he did this for like a year. So I have one, there's two accounts of this. So one account is from one of the striking workers. And so this, that striking worker um, tells a story and at the end, he concludes that, you know, Valliere was, he may have had some faults, but he really fought on our behalf. He really fought for our rights. And then the second account is by an undercover RCMP officer. And in his account, again, like a lot of that dialogue is the same. That like sometimes he, he'll even have Valliere saying like almost the same text. Mm -hmm. But his conclusion is, is, of course, completely different because for him, someone like Valier is a threat to the whole system and the whole system will come crashing down. 
and um, and then he he issues it as as a as a warning of sorts. And so again, that's what I want. That's what fascinated me: how people could sort of take two different things, and then just and then one, and just come to a, a totally different conclusion. In your uh, notes section of the book, uh, you have some great recommendations on further reading on the history of the FLQ. Um, the vast majority of which were written and published in French and probably never translated, or were translated years ago and probably won't be translated again. Right. Uh, why did you think it was important to create a specifically English language historical exploration of the October crisis and events leading to it? Well, I mean. I, I think um, it, it was written in English because that's that's the, the um, that's my mother tongue and that's the language I grew up in and my my uh, my written French is probably not nearly uh, good enough to you know to write a, a book on to, to use to write a book so um, I, I don't think that we, I had much of a choice in on that regard um, and. It was also interesting to me because of the fact that uh, a lot of this material ha is not available in English at all and never has been. Some, some of these really important books have never been translated in English. And a couple of them that have, I mean, the, the, the English editions have been out of print for, for decades. Yeah, so, I think I you mean, said there, there was like one copy of an English translation available at one yeah, library uh -huh. in the archives, so, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, you know, but then having said that, I, I, at the same time, I, I didn't want to release a book that's only in English on this like kind of, you know, controversial uh, subject for Quebec, and I, I'm not sure if many people know this, but when when you have a translated edition, often there's there's a delay. There's a, like sometimes it could be a year, sometimes even more than that. Sometimes like two, a couple years mm -hmm. in between the original language edition and the translated edition. Um, so I really wanted to make sure that the French edition um, came out at the same time as the English edition. So mm -hmm. what I did is I held back the English language edition by like uh, at least a year. And it, technically it could have come out a year ago um, so that the French edition could be translated and planned for. And so now they're literally being published on the, the same, same day, essentially. Um, which was really important for me to, to like, to, again, to have an English and French edition out on the same week, um, but also to have the French edition by um, a Quebecois publisher, like not to have, you know, a publisher in France, for example, publishing right. this, and they probably wouldn't know, wouldn't know <laughs> what to do with this at all. <laughs> so it's not really touched upon in this book, and this is where I'm going to get to some bigger, broader questions that we can explore together. Um, so, yeah, not touched upon in this book. I assume we'll get it in book two. Um, but I do want to talk a bit about the invocation of the War Measures Act by Pierre Trudeau during the FLQ crisis. Um, there was a lot of criticism surrounding the invocation for violating the rights of uh, Quebecois. But the government of the day argued it was done to ensure the protection of society. On a smaller scale, Quebec has used the notwithstanding clause to protect French language legislation like Bill 101 and Bill 96, which might not be charter compliant, but are argued that they offer protection of Quebecois society. Again, probably a big question. 
But how do you think we can balance individual civil rights with broader social concerns? Yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, yeah, I mean, getting to the first the first uh, part, I mean, the War Measures Act um, it was definitely controversial at the time. And I think that the, the more that has been learned about it uh, and revealed, because not all the information was known at the time, it 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 it, it was definitely like um it was definitely a colossal mistake, mm-hmm. um, because the the Trudeau government and this is the Pierre Trudeau government of course, uh, was um, they the facts that they presented to the public was that they said that this was an, uh, a potential insurrection that and there were potentially thousands of FLQ members out there when in fact there were only um, there was only like a little more than a dozen. Um, there, if you stretch it, if you stretch it to like maybe some friends who are helping them out here and there, that you that you may have come up with like thirty or forty people. But that's in, again the orbit of people who may have like put one of them up for a night or something. Um, so to, to to think of that, that there was a, the War Measures Act was imposed like to to combat this group of a couple dozen people is um uh it's pretty crazy yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean and then as far as then the second part of your question as far as like how it relates to um you know bill 101 and bill 96 yeah that's a tough one that's a really really tough one i mean um you know, it, it and it's hard too because it, like Bill One Hundred One, I, I think there's uh, many positive things about it, and I think it, it was for the time um, necessary uh, mm-hmm. because, um, and I don't think a lot of people realize it's still even at that point in the in the in the nineteen seventies that um, that were still um there were still a lot of things that, that were still undone and that had to be you know addressed mm-hmm. um bill 96 then is a totally different thing which is sort of like um uh which sort of goes in a, in a different direction so yeah yeah that's um it would be hard to do to defend that and this is a shorter question but can the violence committed by the FLQ ever be eclipsed by the core ideas of its cause and inception? You know, that's a tricky thing too, like especially when starting on this book, because I I was, my, my, my one big concern doing this book um, is that I, I show a lot of the, the, um, the, the, um, the bumbling ineptitude of the FLQ and so on. And, and it truly was, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating things like they 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 would recruit 16 year olds to to place a bomb somewhere and then the 16 year old would get blown up and I mean just like insane insane things and so I didn't want people to 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 come away and, and just just think this um you know this was just all some ridiculous thing and this whole movement was just uh um, a, a bunch of like uh, inept, um, uh, bungling uh, terrorists <laughs> and so on, because essentially what it is is that the their reasoning, you could say, um, 
I'm not saying the means were justified. I'm saying <laughs> that the I'm saying that essentially at the in the early 1960s when the FLQ started, um, Quebec was a really oppressed um, society for francophones, and mm -hmm. it was the beginning of the of the Quiet Revolution. So things were were changing for the better. But I mean, um, there's a section in the back of the book that, uh, where I talk about the Quiet Revolution, and it's the numbers are just startling. Where where something like uh, post-secondary education for francophones uh, was essentially shut to all but you know 10% of francophones. Literally, the other 90% like you were working in a factory, and mm -hmm. you know that was it. Um, and then, and then you know, and the church, the church um, uh, w was running a lot, a lot of of Quebec. They were running, they were running the education system, um, and then of course, uh, and, and and then the um, up until 1959, the the Plessy regime essentially made sure that um, francophones were were poorly paid. Um, as a form of cheap labor, so that American companies could sort of like, um, you know, exploit the resources of Quebec and not have to pay, uh, you know, workers very, very much. So I mean, the FLQ uh, saw <laughs> all of that, and they were reacting to it, of course, mm -hmm. right? Because it was a terrible system, and and Quebec was really ripe for revolution. Um, but the difference is that. They chose the means that they chose to address uh, these issues were were tragic. It was absolutely tragic. It was um, yeah. I don't know what to say about. But there's there's almost nothing good you can say about the, the means that they chose to address this. How um, how far do you think you could have gone back in terms of FLQ history and the Quiet Revolution? I mean, there are some arguments that say Gabriel Roy coming out with um, Bonheur d'Occasion was kind of one of the first triggers of the Quiet Revolution, um, as well as the... Um, oh, man, I can't remember the year now, but the, the hockey riots... Um, Oh right, the Richard rocket, uh, Richard, the Richard uh, rocket. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the yeah. question there, kind of being like, how far could you have gone back into the history, and why did you stop? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because like uh, working on this book, there were so many elements in it. Like I think anyone who who uh, you know. Who works in the arts? Who's a novelist or a musician or or a painter, or whatever? Like you often have a project where you have a, a lot more than than could fit, <laughs> um, and you end up cutting things and just trimming and trimming and trimming. And and in in regards to this, that's what's happened a lot. There were there were other things that I I did want to address, other issues, but for one reason or another. Um, um, it always sort of made for a better book. I did. I didn't want to have like a hundred different topics, right? I wanted right. to sort of like hone hone it in, um, and so it's true. I mean, I could have. Some people actually cite the Richard uh, riots as as the awake as an awakening. Um, so I could have started with that. I do. I do start with another controversy though, just a few years after the Richard riots, which is. Um, there was something that happened where um, Donald Gordon, who was the president of CN Railway, was being um, questioned uh, by a parliamentary committee 
about mm. why there were almost no francophones um, in the higher ranks of CN Railway. And CN Railway was a crown corporation at the time, so it, it was essentially like owned by Canada. And, yeah. and then he said, he came, he replied that uh, it was a question of talent that essentially he was essentially saying like the francophones were not talented and he and he could not find qualified qualified francophones for the post now that actually um incited like huge demonstrations mm. the the next day and 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 the and the funny thing this wasn't just like a one off this wasn't just like okay this is a big demonstration and then everyone forgot about it the next week what was amazing is that when I was doing my research, I would uh, come across these interviews with um, whether it's former LTLQ members, whether members of the TQ, or just you know people from from the 1960s and 70s, and they almost all of them would cite that as their political awakening. Like even years later, even like in an interview from I don't know 1978 or something. They would say, and that time when Donald Gordon said that, you know, there were no talented francophones and that's when, you know, like everyone, everyone came back to that. And, mm -hmm. and that was, that, that really struck me as being remarkable. If I can just add one thing to that. So, like I said, like I came across all these interviews um, where people were citing that. So in, in one part of the demonstration, um, the group of university students who occupied Donald Gordon's office as part of their protest. Uh, and then I was struck when I came across the name of the leader of the student um, uh, university movement who, who was basically occupying the office of this Anglophone director. And the name was Bernard Landry, who years later, like 35 years later, would go on to become the, the uh, premier of Quebec. So it, it, it really, really, like something like that really, really struck a chord and that had a ripple effect for decades in Quebec. So uh, Weird Era founder and my co-host and uh, actually former employee at D&Q, uh, Sruti Islam brought up a really interesting point uh, when we were chatting about this interview and chatting about your book. Both of her parents were born in Bangladesh, and her father, uh, an immigrant who had to acclimate to Quebecois culture and still only speaks French minimally, has always been inherently very much for the protection of French language here. Um, he is also a Muslim man. Something like Bill 96 uh, does direct harm to his community. But because in the fight for Bangladesh independence, they fought specifically for their right to the Bengali language, they show solidarity for others who do the same. Again, this is a big question. We're not asking you to solve the world. <laughs> Just curious about your thoughts. Um, how can people navigate that kind of solidarity when also being the victims of oppression? It's hard. I mean, because... because um... Like I said, I think if you go back to something like Bill 101, a lot of that was um, very essential, even though a lot of people were angry because they felt that their rights were being trampled on, right? Um, and um, so, so it is really difficult because it's like on the one hand, um, uh, it's, it is important to like, to try to, to, to help other communities, especially like, like, uh, 
the the francophone community who who were oppressed for well not just decades it was like centuries mm-hmm. um but so it's a question of so yeah it's really really it's it's really really difficult because like how far do you go with that without like then um taking away the rights from other other communities and it's in it's yeah so that's really really difficult yeah yeah maybe looking at it through the context that you know i i would say myself as somebody who is a language minority in this province maybe but who still does i i do feel that you know protecting the French language is important to Quebecers, and I am a Quebecer, but maybe through the lens of Anglo-Quebecois culture and identity, um, where is that line of showing solidarity while also trying to just not be oppressed? <laughs> it's a tough, tough line to, to, to walk on. It's, uh, yeah, it's because there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues there. Yeah. And it, and it and it also shows like how like Quebec society has become more complex because like a lot of these debates in the beginning, like in the nineteen sixties and seventies, even maybe up until the early eighties, were it was like it was like mostly anglophone and francophone, and now and now as you said, there's, um, you know, there's other there's other communities who are affected by this too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I'm going to actually jump forward in my questions a little bit and jumping off of this big question. um, Tula Dramonis uh, in 2022 published a book called We the Others. It it feels very much like a companion piece to Are You Willing to Die for the Cause to me. Um, While Tula's book explores the ideas surrounding Quebecois identity when we talk about immigration and Anglophones and allophones, your book is a historical exploration about how we've gotten to where we are. Uh, There seems to be a link between the two in that we are currently discussing what exactly constitutes Quebecois identity in the 21st century. in the 50 years since the FLQ crisis, political and reality, political reality in Quebec has changed, um, and the Quebecois identity has evolved, but there are still conversations to be had. What have we learned from the FLQ crisis when we discuss equal rights and Quebecois identity? Well, what we've learned from the FLQ, it is hard to say, um, because I, I do think that... Um, that it gets muddled sometimes, and and sometimes, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if everyone knows the distinction between the 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 pol- political route taken by the Parti Québécois and the um, well the 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 route of violence taken by the FLQ, um, because they were two completely. Even though, as as I said, that they were kind of fighting against the same things. Um, they were two completely different routes, uh, and both sides uh, hated each other. I mean, René Lévesque was was like ashamed of the of the FLQ, mm-hmm. and um, and what's interesting also is that the FLQ essentially um, disappeared after the October crisis of 1970, whereas the the PQ went on to become um, a much more potent force. And leading up to their their first victory in 1976, 
and and leading up to al- their almost uh, referen- referendum win in 1995. So, so you know, the funny thing is the, the, the PQ ended up being much, much more effective, um, mm. which, which is probably a good thing because, um, y- you know, y- you don't want these things to come about through, through bombings and so on. So, I mean, it, was, it, it, it definitely was a good thing that there was the PQ, the PQ <laughs> who actually won out and not the FLQ. But I do think still that the, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if people, uh, maybe younger people or maybe people who are not too, no, 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 don't know too much about this, if they get the two confused. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think even a year or two ago when this film came out on, on the FLQ, it was called Le, Le Rose, about the, the, the Rose Brothers. And I think some people were just, um, there was one, um, uh, uh, a politician who had her like fist up in front of the film poster and and I think it's sort of just forgetting like okay well it's not this is not the PQ this was a group that you know that tried to like bomb factories and maybe maybe that wasn't a good idea mm. the uh, FLQ organizers argued that as original settlers of quote Canada uh, their rights as French speakers were being trampled by English-speaking Canadians in government, feda- federally and provincially, um, in, in, in workplaces. Today, we're in an era of reconciliation in regards to First Nations people in this country. I'm curious about whether or not the fact of colonialism was something discussed by the FLQ at any point, with so much of their founding ideas about revolution and freedom being taken from revolutionaries like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Mm -hmm. Um, Was the protection of rights of Indigenous people in Quebec ever a part of that conversation? It wasn't a part of the conversation in the beginning. They definitely, the, the first wave of the FLQ definitely um, uh, fought against colonialism and, and they mentioned it in their manifesto. And that's why the first wave always um, had as targets uh, uh, Canadian institutions like uh, armories and, and, um, and so on. Um, but in, in terms of First Nations people, that um, it, it was not it was not mentioned, um, and it, because at the time in, in the, at the time at that era in the nineteen sixties, it, it 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 really was not talked about uh, very much at all, like both on, on the English side and the French side. Um, but as an as a very interesting side note, one of the FLQ key members, Pierre Valliere, who you know, has been a controversial figure for many years for for many reasons. He's had a fascinating life, and towards the end of his life, uh, he died at a young age, relatively young age, age 60 and, and 1998. Towards the end of his life, he actually um, uh, fought on behalf of First Nations rights. And... Um, um, he uh, he had sort of various causes, and he sort of came out against not against um, not against um, uh, Quebecois nationalism per se, but a more a more ethnic nationalism that you that unfortunately is sort of more common today. Like he, if he was alive today, he probably would have been appalled by 
you know, what uh, Francois Legault is doing. So, mm-hmm. um, so that is interesting that towards the end of his life, um, uh, th- that he did, he did um, um, support uh, First Nations rights. And he saw that as being, as, as being a very important oversight in, of like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Ethel Q of the 1960s. Do you think, um, I, I mean, the two of the three uh, founding members of the FLQ that you talk about the most in your book, uh, the third being Pierre Valliard, who we were just speaking of, um, the other two are uh, Georges Shooters and Francois Sherm, who were both immigrants to Quebec. Do you think having French Canadians in those positions, would they have been more privy to the plight of First Nations people, or do you think that was just never even on the table at that point? From what I can tell, like just again, just from all the um, everything that was written um, at the time, um, unfortunately, it 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 just was something that was never um, uh, that was never mentioned. Like it, it literally was mm. never mentioned. I, I I can't actually even recall a single book um or or magazine article or newspaper article that had mentioned it um so so you know i th- i do think that the the having two um recently arrived immigrants probably b- brought a different perspective to the table um but uh, this on the other hand they did identify as francophones even though one of them the second one francois sherm w- was from hungary um, he identified as francophone because when he arrived here, the only job he could get was as, as a night watchman at a at a um, grocery store, and then and from that experience, he he said, "Well, I I'm just like the other francophones. I'm learning I'm earning a dollar, and that w- that was it was a dollar an hour, right. um, which today would be about ten ten dollars an hour, which is still really obviously extremely low." Um, so yeah, he in his courtroom testimony, he really identified with with francophones, the the the, the oppressed francophone majority. I think um, "Are You Willing to Die for the Cause" is a fairly balanced and pretty unbiased work. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. I think we can all agree that the innocent lives lost at the hands of the FLQ movement was tragic and unnecessary. I think we can also agree that their criticisms of the government of that time were sound in regards to French speakers' rights. At the same time, I'm curious about how you think the three key founders who we were also just speaking about, so Georges Schouders, Francois Sherm, and Pierre Valliard, would think of this book if they read it. What would your ideal reactions from these three men be? It's hard to say because they're all dead now, so I can. <laughs> but but um, I don't know. It, it, it's also it is very difficult to say because the first guy, your shooters, uh, he had a very conflicted life. I think he was actually, from what I've read, he was extremely conflicted about what happened, and mm-hmm. he actually ended up taking his own life. Right. Um, uh, so he probably would not, have, you know, no matter how I, anyone portrayed this, I don't think he would have been happy to see any of this in print. Valier, I mean, it's hard to say. I did try to shine a light on on this this lesser known aspect of his life, which is like his support for labor rights. Um, 
And then uh, Francois Sherman, it is hard to say, he was the one who actually lived the longest. He, he died mm-hmm. not too, too long ago in 2014. He retired in Laval, actually the same <laughs> where I grew up. <laughs> and um, he, from, from all accounts, he lived, a, he, he enjoyed a very, a very peaceful retirement for, for many years. Do you think they would find, as I did, that this was a balanced and unbiased portrayal of their experience? I, yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, um, again, like I, I, I it, it's hard to say because if people looking at, at, at or reading parts of these chapters, they, they might think. Like Francois Sherm, to, to be specific, I mean, he comes across as being kind of nutty. I mean, like in, in the courtroom, he's like always saying, you know, uh, long live a free Quebec. And he's, he's, he was actually wearing army fatigues in the courtroom. And again, like, but so when people read that, I think people might think, oh, I'm making this up for sure that I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. And, and what's incredible is that it actually is all true. And then all, all you know, he was... He was wearing arm. He was somehow allowed to wear army fatigues in the courtroom, um, and he was constantly interrupting the judge. And and um, uh, so I mean I don't know. Maybe maybe he wouldn't have liked that that I portrayed him like this. But again, I I, I was just following what was you know what what the newspapers were reporting. <laughs> Last question of our day. Um, what can we expect from Are You Willing to Die for the Cause Book Two? Well, that book is um, is going to be the October crisis, and so um, in many ways, I, I did. Wa- I wanted to make sure that this book, the first book, "Are You Willing to Die for the Cause," it stands on its own, like it doesn't end where you're just kind of like wondering, okay, now what happens? Mm. Um, and um, but there is sort of a bridge at the very end that leads to. Um, essentially to to the October crisis of 1970 which is uh, which is known for the kidnappings the kidnappings of of, uh, uh, of two people one of who one of who uh, died I will just say also you you really got me at the end of that book where uh, where I was expecting to kind of keep going and then it said you know to be continued <laughs> right <laughs> you got me with that cliffhanger Chris all right. Well, that's okay. I hope that's good, Dad. I hope. <laughs> so that is it for us. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this was a fantastic read. Thanks a lot. Um, I can't wait to put it in the hands of many readers and uh, can't wait to have you back for book two. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks a lot. Of course. And thanks, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>